0: bring a skill like bring me your skill and your heart and then i can work with that but go get a skill and as tough as that is and as much as that takes delayed gratification what we need are more business people who are really passionate and give a damn kind of folks we need data professionals i mean we need people in all sectors who then can come together and have this team of really really passionate compassionate, empathetic individuals working toward global change.
1: My guest today is Elena Galina. Elena is a remarkable young woman. You don't know who she is, but I have a feeling that'll change in the future, not just because you're gonna get to know her in this podcast, and it's not that I know something you don't know. It's simply that I believe she is going to do great things for so many humans in her lifetime. She has accomplished so much already, and I believe that she has only just begun. And you'll get a taste of what I mean in our conversation today. Among her many accomplishments, she has been awarded the prestigious Harry S. Truman Scholarship. That's kind of a big deal. And she's also a Rhodes Scholar finalist, also a big deal. Elena grew up as the child of humanitarian aid workers, so she was able to see firsthand what it looks like to give a damn. She has seen charity and aid work done well, and also done so poorly in the aftermath of conflicts and wars all over the world. She has worked in Syrian refugee camps, she built programs and community in Swaziland and so much more. She has a heart for helping and empowering women in a variety of ways. She definitely puts her money where her mouth is. Now, when it comes to working in conflict areas and empowering women, there are several ways to go about it. Two main ways that I'd like to point out briefly before we get into the conversation. One can stay in the refugee camps and serve in a hands-on way day in and day out, or one can go the longer and harder route of becoming an agent of change from a policy level. This is the much harder route in the route that Elena has chosen. I've already said too much. You're going to want to stick around for our conversation. So I'll be quiet now. Well, not yet. Let me introduce what we're about to do first. I'm excited you get to hear our conversation today. Without further ado, I'm your host, Nick LaPara. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. And here's my conversation with Elena Galena. We have Elena with us today. Elena, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you today?
1: Fantastic. I said it right, didn't I? Your first good name, day. Elena? Yeah,
0: Elena. Like okay, Elena great. without the
1: H. Helena without the H. I love it. Uh, well, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, so you're uh, at home right now, which home right now is Boise, correct?
0: That is correct. I have a tiny little studio in Boise, Idaho. It's my first four walls uh, my first time being somewhere for more than eight months in the last six years. So I'm loving
1: it. Yeah. I'm excited to dig into that here in a little bit because you have quite the story to tell. I'm super excited. Let's give everyone context though, before we get into the ways that you give a damn, which they are plentiful, right. And we're going to get into some of those. How about do this for me? Begin by sharing your story. You've done A hell of a lot of things, and you know, in terms of giving a damn. And so, stop just short. Uh, Tell me your story. Go back as far as you want. Basically, what I'm looking for is like the people, places, and things that made you who you are today, right? And stop just short of all of the. Basically, this is your first four walls in the last six years, and so stop just short of that because I want to spend some time on those things. But give give us some context here for what are the things and the people and the places that made you who you are today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so many. I've been privileged to live in a lot of places and have incredible people inform who I am today. I grew up in the former Yugoslavia, in Kosovo, Macedonia, and Albania primarily, three little countries the size of states in the Balkans. Um, My parents moved there when I was a toddler to do war relief after the uh, 99 genocide in Kosovo. And we moved around quite a bit um, in that region every six months to a year, based on the level of conflict and the nature of the work they were doing. Um, so that was an incredible way to grow up, though. I, I wouldn't trade it. It was tough, but it was also very eye-opening. I think you it's easy to take for granted how much it instructed who I am today or how much of the world it, it really showed me. So that was the early childhood hopping around between those countries. Um, If you don't know anything about those countries, the Balkans, there were a series of wars there in the nineties and into the early two thousands, There's lots of unrest, um, ethnic tensions. So we worked primarily with Albanian people. And so I am, I speak Albanian like a street kid. I am fluent. Um, The joke with my friends now is that I'm fluent in no language because I can engage in colloquialisms in Albanian and I can't do that very well in English because most of my upbringing was there. I know you're also or are you how many languages do you speak?
1: Well, fluently English and Spanish. Okay, i was going to uh, say English so is my birth language. So yeah, bilingual, but I I can mess around in Romanian and Portuguese, uh, you know, Italian because of the similarities. I've spent some time in countries that speak those languages. Um, so anyway, yeah, but mostly just bilingual at this point.
0: No, but you understand sort of the, yeah. how some phrases will come out in a different language and the, you sometimes oh, man,
1: don't, all the don't master
0: any of them appropriately. So that's a fun well, thing. In
1: 2001 when I was transitioning back to the U S from after 10 years or so in Guatemala, uh, 2002. So around there, when I was transitioning back to U S living for a while, it was so hard because I had spoken almost exclusively Spanish for, you know, almost a decade. Um, except when I was at home, but I spent most of my time with friends and out doing things. It was very hard to transition back into yeah, just like you said, I knew the language, like I could speak the words and put together sentences, but but different idiom just different jokes. Like the and different humor, yeah, thing, the humor all is all the stuff. Is, yep. <laughs> I couldn't do it for years. It took me to actually like get back into that. So anyway, I understand that. Keep keep going.
0: Yeah. So anyway, that's a, a fun back and forth between Albanian and English. And then I've studied some Arabic and spent some time in that part of the world. Uh, but we'll get to that later, I know. So that's the early years of childhood. I have two siblings who I love immensely. Couldn't be more different than me, but are definitely my closest friends. I'm sandwiched right in between them. And so they grew
1: up in this this same environment?
0: They did, yeah. We all kind of have interpreted differently. And as we've come into adulthood, chosen very different life paths and careers and religious outlooks. But grew up together. And I think moving constantly really forges a certain amount of closeness that I wouldn't trade also. I, I realize I'm super privileged to have two wonderful sisters who would do anything for me, despite our differences. And then, I don't know, fourteen fifteen, we did some time, we moved back to the States for a little while and I attended high school in the Philadelphia area, which was talk about cultural transition and culture shock. If you've ever seen that movie Mean Girls, which I imagine most people listening have, it was a little bit like Mean Girls. Um, the lunchroom table drama. I thought it would, wouldn't actually be true, but my first week, I did sit down in the wrong seat and had a girl come over and say, um, you're in my seat. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, whoa. I thought this was only TV. Um, so that was fun. That was definitely a, a rude awakening to I am a foreigner. I am in unfamiliar space. But I was privileged to go to a really good like, academic high school. And so I, I had some liberty with what I could do academically And was given a decent amount of freedom from my teachers to kind of pursue my own interests, which I think was the saving grace of that transition.
1: So it's no accident. Bottom line is it's no accident that you came out the way that you did based on just a little bit you've told me already from your parents. And even like, so what were they doing real quickly? If you can even tell me this, what were they doing before heading over there in the 90s to do like war relief stuff?
0: Yeah. So my dad was a outpatient therapist. So he was a background in social work and psychology. And my mom was a stay at home mom homeschooling my older sister at the time. I was too young to really be schooled, but my older sister was, I don't know, third grade. And so that was kind of, they always knew they wanted to be overseas, but they were sort of doing the Midwest. They're from Michigan, the pretty, uh, I don't know, traditional Michigan life. Which is incredibly different. I'm, I'm re- I've realized now, of course, when you grow up in it, it's your norm. So to me, those early years in the Balkans, that's what normal life is. And since I've grown up and gone back and met some of their friends and seen the, the alternate life they would have lived had they stayed, I'm like, wow. They really talk about jumping outside their comfort zones. I mean, props to my parents for moving their three small children to Kosovo right after 99 and could not be more different than, than what they left behind.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting for me because you and I both have similar backgrounds in that we have spent the majority of our lives in upheaval, whether voluntary upheaval or involuntary (laughs) upheaval, but we've spent the majority of our lives. And it's funny because two weeks ago um, on the podcast, my buddy uh, Rick Perez from, he lives in New York city, an amazing dude, just wrote a book called "Mikasa Uptown." We talked about that quite a bit, but he has spent 29 of his 33 years in the same neighborhood, Inwood in Washington Heights, like Upper Man Upper Manhattan. And I thought that was like when we were doing a prep call, like a couple weeks before, just talking through stuff. Uh, we he and I were catching up as well. I just told him, I said, "I am my mind is blown just thinking about, and I I am jealous of some of that." Now I wouldn't I wouldn't trade my upbringing for anything. You could literally not pay me any amount of money to trade it. But at the same time, something that you and I don't have is this thing called roots. And there are so many benefits to being in a place and staying in a place not out of complacency and like, oh, this is just the way it is. So I'm just going to be here all my life. But like Rich and so many others have said, no, like this is home. These are my people. I'm going to help. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. We're going to make this a meaningful place to be and to live. And that's, you know, and there's so many pluses that things that I've never experienced that um, personally. But let's talk for a minute about for those listening that. I would guess the majority have not lived the kind of lives you and I have, just always moving, always on the move. List some of the, the things that you see as positives and then list a couple negatives maybe just so that people can get a framework for this kind of kind of vagabond life almost. Yeah, for
0: sure. I actually prefer the word nomad. This is what all my friends- Nomad. Nomad. I, I get often called a nomad. Um,
1: yeah, totally.
0: And before I do that, I got to go back to, you said you wouldn't take any amount of money to trade your upbringing, which I love. I love that outlook. Yeah. And I'm curious for me and for listeners- Have you always felt that way, or did you go through a time like when you were sixteen, or when you were twenty, or when you were angsty about this instability and inconsistency of the type of childhood we had?
1: Yeah, I would say I've always felt that way. I would say there were there were a couple times when I had these like stupid, like teenage moments where. I knew that my friends back in the States, like I'm in war-torn Guatemala, right? We're always like fearing that we're going to like get kidnapped or, you know, killed. And, you know, they would be going to prom or just different things like that where I would have like literally like a day or two where I was like, this is fucking stupid. Like, why can't I have prom? Why didn't I, you know? And then that would go away because I would see how blessed I was and how, okay, A, what is prom? And B okay, it's a one night event that we kind of glamor up and it's this glamorized thing that everybody should do and go to and have, you know, partake in. But look at me, I'm over here growing up in this amazing country, um, learning a different language. So, so all that to say is I would say with very, very few exceptions and those exceptions lasted a day or two or three, I've always felt that way.
0: All right, cool. Well, I'll what launch into you? some of my, I was about to say, I'll get into my frustrations when sure. we get, I'm supposed to first name, you said the highlights and some of the, the positives. And then I can talk about some of the real shit that people don't like to hear. And people sort of, we have this glamorized idea of the nomad wandering life. Um, and it is in, like I said, in some ways phenomenal. And I think the, I mean, without it sounding, I don't know, cliche, number one thing that it gives you is just a really broad worldview and ability to connect to people across cultures, languages. I mean, I can honestly say my number one strength is that you could place me just about anywhere and I can find some way to connect to somebody. Like there's nowhere in the world. I've been at cocktail parties with billionaires. I've been in refugee camps on the front lines of war. I've been stuck at borders. I've been to balls. I mean, like you name it with country culture, like norms, I've sort of been there and been, and so I can insert myself in different situations and find, find a way to see people in their humanness and see a little bit less of all the things we don't have in common. Cause inevitably anywhere I go, I don't have something in common with someone. And so then I think that that's also the plus side of never really having a home or a particular nationality you ascribe to, or I just don't, I don't, my identity doesn't lie in any of those things. And so I find it easier to connect to people. And then just the sheer amount of beauty that I've been exposed to. I have like a fun side note about my personality and my nature is I have this obsession with aesthetics and art and beauty. And a lot of what I do right now is much more academic or scholarly But really, at the core of who I am, that's also a joke with friends, is I'm really an artist and an activist at heart. I'm not really an academic or a policymaker. I love photography and ceramics and food and music. And just getting to see the world and the way people all around the globe make beauty in different circumstances, that I wouldn't trade for anything. I mean, beauty can be found in the most dire of circumstance and condition and that's that's enough to wake you up in the morning on the bleakest of days remembering how other people have managed to make something incredible and just like aesthetically outrageous in the midst of complete chaos
1: yeah no that's helpful i i told my wife this that w- you know one of our our first big vacation that we're going to take with the kids is not going to be you know, Disneyland or any of those, like, we're going to go to, we're probably actually for multiple reasons, we're going to go to Guatemala. Yeah. I was going to
0: say Guatemala is a good, I was there this summer and it's breathtaking.
1: It's amazing. The people, the, the place. And I I want my kids to see where I grew up and, you know, I want to go back to my old house or we had several houses, but my old neighborhood. And, um, here's where I almost got kidnapped and here's where we climbed a volcano. And here's this, that, you know, I have so much of my existence that was there, but, I guess what some of the things you named as being you know as positives you can go anywhere and see beauty you can go anywhere and connect with people those are things that i want for everyone and those are really essential ingredients to giving a damn is someone that has empathy someone that enjoys diversity and different kinds of people doing different kinds of things in many different kinds of ways and I always find it so sad. And I meet people all the time, especially since we've been spending a lot more time in the South these days, because our families are here. People that have never that have been in like three or four states, right? So they they've lived your other lives. They go to vacation, like same place every year, Myrtle Beach or wherever it may be, or you know, Disneyland down in Florida. And they've been to like four or five states, and that's it. And then they wonder why, you know, I guess I don't wonder why they're intolerant or They like things a certain way and can't stand when they're not that way or immigrant this or refugee that. And I'm like, well, no wonder – you've never seen how beautiful and diverse and amazing the world is. That has to become comfortable. That has to become a comfortable thing for you to not just like tolerate it and be around it because anybody can do that. You can like just keep your mouth shut for a little bit with something that you don't like, but to actually enjoy it and love it and embrace it, right?
0: I would say I feel a little bit like we've got to push back. I completely agree except for you and I run the risk of then feeling like the only way to have empathy is to have traveled and I don't think that's true. So for the sake of all of the listeners out there that haven't had the luxury of the types of upbringings we've had, I think it's good to note that I know incredibly loving and tolerant and open-minded people who have never left their hometown. So I don't think that it's a it's a prerequisite to being an incredible empathetic and give a damn kind of person. And I never then want to take my experiences and somehow like hold them over other people, if that makes sense, which I don't think is what you're doing, but I want to make sure that that's articulated for people that I feel fortunate that our upbringing forces you to have that perspective. Like it, you don't really have a choice, but to get over some of your stereotyping and judgment. But at the same time, there's so many people who, even without having traveled, managed to do that on their own. And I mean, kudos to them, because that's an even greater feat than, like, of course, you and I are okay in various environments, because since we were five and six, we had to be, right?
1: Right that's a great point thank you for pointing that i obviously agree with you a thousand percent i know so many amazing people that they've been you know they've stayed in their little whatever you know podunk town and that that's the home for them and they love it and they love the you know football after high school on friday nights they, they do all that and they're some of the most amazing people so without a doubt i just agree with you as well that we were we were flung into it we were hurled into it and i'm a better person because of it that's for sure yeah.
0: Just don't I like, Just like, don't want anyone out there who hasn't had a chance to leave their city or their state to feel somehow discouraged that we don't think that they're as open-minded or as passionate of individuals because of it. Because I've been in, I've been floored by all of the people who have taken up, like here in Boise, for example. Because I live in a part of the country where people don't often leave, and I know some really phenomenal people in my community that do a lot to fight for refugee rights here because that's a big area of contention. And a lot of them have never left Idaho or never left within an hour of Boise, but they just have transformed our community with their love and open-mindedness. And I think those people continue to humble me because of how much-
1: No, that's super, yeah, that's great. To add on top of that question, would you encourage people to, if possible, to get out and go see some stuff and that's what I try to do and I hear a lot of people say well I can't do that you know you have this and that happen to you. and I'm like listen we live in an amazing time when like let's just be honest it costs way more to go to Disneyland than it does to Guatemala oh, or, Iceland or somewhere <laughs> else right and so and so I I try to whenever I hear people which is very often say well that's that was your thing like I can't do that and I'm like listen I know how much mo- like just save, spend two years saving. You can do it. I know how much money you spend on this, that, and the other. So I- So
0: perfect example. I'll just give, I'll give a yeah. perfect little tidbit Please. example of that. So I spent uh, eight months last year in Israel and Palestine, which I know we might get into later. But one of the things is I do, I love to travel. And so when I set up my budget, I am a college student, don't have a lot of money. I'm constantly reevaluating how to live on nothing, but travel takes precedence. And so- All of last year I was like, you know, if I don't drink as much as my peers because two or three drinks in Israel, you know, it's a lot of money. There's like $8 a beer. So if I go through three drinks on a Friday night over the course of all of this time, how much money will I have at the end? And basically I chose not to drink and managed to backpack for two weeks through Mexico and Guatemala this summer. So, I mean, eight months of foregoing getting drunk on a Friday night with people led to the ability to backpack for two weeks so again i think it just that's a perfect example of just assess what your priorities are and kind of determine it's not so far-fetched you don't have to have ten thousand dollars you can budget travel i mean you can do what i do you just get a backpack get on an airplane and see what's out there um
1: yeah no 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 totally i completely agree. And I'm always encouraging people to reevaluate. This is not a travel show, so we'll shut up about this after (laughs) this, but, but it's important. I think it is, like you said, it's not essential. There are so many damn giving people, but what, what is essential is for us, whether, whether it's through um, reading articles or books or watching Ted talks or watching documentaries or getting ourselves on a plane and going to spend time in these places. My point is we have to put different things in in front of ourselves and obviously the best of all of that out of reading articles or being there in person is to go there in person and so I'm always encouraging people like go like spend some time in these places you are going to come back a much different person with a with a vastly different perspective and a bigger worldview Um, I use that term all the time you used it already you know this worldview that we you and I have been gift-wrapped because of our our time overseas. So we've been alluding to all these different experiences. Right, well, I've
0: got to launch into the negatives, though, and some of the, the downsides, which are that sense of homelessness. And I think that we'll launch into that as we get into more of what I've been up to and the things the last few years have unfolded for me. Unlike you, I didn't spend every moment just thankful for my childhood. There were definitely times... I remember distinctly, I think, 16, being 16 and having a 16th birthday. And we had just recently moved and great family, like I said. So we, you know, had dinner as a family. But I had no friends because my friends are all over the world. And so even now, I'm incredibly privileged to be able to get on an airplane and go somewhere and crash with someone because I know people everywhere. But that doesn't mean that on a Tuesday night when I want someone to go running with, I have someone to go running with. Like that is the flip side of the constant motion, and it takes a lot of energy to overcome not having any shared experiences. So the types of television shows people watch, or what you were doing in second grade, is going to be completely different than what I was doing in second grade. Um, all that kind of stuff can't be underestimated for the for the type of drain it kind of places on you after a while. And then I think some of the intensity of the places that I've been, and we'll talk about that more, is there is a heaviness in those environments, which eventually starts to weigh. And that's another thing that I, I love. I think you've addressed it before with other people that are kind of give a damn kind of folks in the podcast is self-care and how we, how we strike that balance of being really passionate, determined people trying to make some positive impact in the world, and then also recognizing our limits and being like, wow, this is heavy. And that that negotiation can be tough when you're doing the constant movement, so.
1: Yeah, even though I can not stand in front of you because we're not standing in front of each other, but I can stand in front of you and say, I don't regret any of it. You are a thousand percent correct. That I am a, on the one hand, my empathy, like I am high EQ, emotional intelligence through the roof, uh, people centric, very high empathetic, like people are my favorite thing in the world and my main thing in the world. At the same time that the, all that is true, I have a part of my life that is very hardened because of my upbringing. And on the one hand, it's because of this constant vagabonding where I'm always, I'm always leaving relationships that are close to me. We just left a year and a half ago. We left the Seattle Tacoma area, Pacific Northwest. Just I'm still in a way, grieving some of the relationships that I've lost because they were some of my favorite people in the world. And I've seen, and you probably have these stories too, like I've seen, I saw a guy when I was a young teenager get chopped to pieces by a machete. I've seen people get murdered in front of me. I've seen people get kidnapped right in front of me. Not watching it through a, t- you know, everybody has, you know, seen Liam Neeson, you know. taking yeah, yeah, taken it's and totally all the, But you know, yep. it's different seeing it in front of you, seeing these real people, and you can't go back from that. You can't unsee those things. And so I am an incredibly hard kind of callous person and so there's this constant battle between like my love for people and my high empathy with the fact that I've seen so much shit has like kind of messed me up and um and so you're totally right it's not all fun and games um yeah but but we have to get back to encouraging people though because we now we got to get into
0: why why giving a damn is a good thing though
1: Yes, 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 yes. No, but I think this is good. Uh, I haven't had a lot of people on where I've been able to like resonate so deeply with in terms of like our upbringing. So yes, I think that's helpful for people to hear that it's not easy out there to give a damn. I'm always reminding people that this is not a sexy thing. To it is it is life fulfilling and you will be the happiest. You will be the deeply happiest person you know if you give yourself to other people. But it is not easy, and so that's been proven by you know. And we're going to talk more about that right now. So let's let's switch a little bit. I could spend the next twenty minutes just reading through your incredible resume and your personal statement, um, which you've sent me and I've looked over, and I, I know what you've done, and it's just it's incredible. And so what I want you to do is now let's spend a few minutes. You talking me through, you mentioned you have four walls to call your own for the last eight months for the first time in six years. Walk us through these six years and tell us the kinds of things you've done and, yeah, the, even some of the ups and downs there. Let's spend a few minutes there.
0: Oh, it's been exciting. It's been a wild ride. Um, in some ways, I'm only just now looking up and realizing how much of a wild ride it's been and how quickly it's all unfolded. But basically, at when I landed in the Philadelphia area and went to high school and realized that I was... Um, ahead in my schooling, I had this idea. I'd always wanted to study Arabic and work with women's rights in the Middle East. And so I decided, why not? I can move to Jordan because I'm graduating early. I was going to, I was going to just be 17 when I graduated high school and I wasn't, uh, quite ready for the university situation. So I convinced my high school to allow me to graduate early. I worked in the food industry with catering because that's my other side love is the food industry. So saved all my money for a year and then um, found myself in Jordan, got an apartment, found a language program and just started volunteering anywhere and everywhere. And I think if there's one thing I want people to take away from the crazy ups and downs of my journey is that sometimes you have no idea where it's going to get you. You just follow a passion to be helpful. And that was what I found In the end, looking back, there is a thread to all of what I've done. It all kind of lines up, which is weird because it's really just been me following like this gut desire to do something. Like there's just a raw passion there that is more than any type of intellectual planning. It's just a, God, I've got to do something to figure out what's going on here and to be helpful. And so I just volunteered anywhere and just put myself out there within the activist community in Jordan and within maybe a month or so was approached by someone who was working in one of the refugee camps on the Syrian border, the largest camp that there is at the time. It was 150,000 people, um, Zatari. And this was back in 2013 when the Syrian civil war was in some of its more and most intense stages. Um, because I had done some art stuff. I think I mentioned that earlier. That's one of the loves. Um, I had done some beading and crafting, they asked me if I'd be willing to help train women and get this project going and if I had any thought on involvement. And we sat down and brainstormed and we we didn't really know what we were doing, but we knew that women in the refugee camp needed a source of income and something that I could do and we could do was to train a group of women how to bead and how to do handicrafts and then like fair trade style, sell those products overseas. And so kind of without any distinct idea of what we were doing, but a lot of hope and a lot of enthusiasm. We set about starting this project. And within the next few months, I worked with a group of about 20 Syrian war widows, and just trained them in the art of beading. And the project persists today. Can't believe that I'm really excited by that. And they've gone on and trained other women and but that was what I did for a few months in Jordan. And during that time, again, not having some long term vision, but just What's going on here, the type of oppression that these women are subjected to, that environment, I mean, is intense. Maybe I'm sure people have read articles or books or are privy to some extent of what the refugee experience can be like. Fortunately for me, I mean, part of why they signed me on to that project was because I did grow up in war zone refugee environments. So a lot of it was familiar to me because otherwise it it would be quite an overwhelming emotionally challenging environment, just the amount of abuse and poverty and just the conditions that people face are horrific.
1: Go into it as far as you want, but could you, I don't want to assume that everybody does know what happens. I, th- I think I think probably some people that are listening are actually saying, like, phew, they got into a refugee camp. Everything's okay now until they find a home. But the reality, you you know this and I know this. Like it's not it's a it's a fucked up oh, place a in a lot of place. ways. I was gonna
0: say we could you and know so, so it's tough because there's so much that could be said and I don't want to bog people down with the details. Those environments in immediate disaster are just chaos because, despite the best efforts of whatever hosting country, or in this case, the UN, who was the UNHCR is the branch that had this camp running, they can only handle the inflow of people and manage 150,000 individuals just living in tents in the middle of the desert. So effectively, no amount of manpower in attempts at organization. So. At the time, one of the biggest issues was just the fact that so many people were coming daily, you know, thousands by bus daily were crossing the border. And I mean, we were right on the border. You could hear the bombs from the camp. I mean, it's there. The Syrian war is right, right there. And so people are just entered into this camp environment and it's tense. And so the harsh conditions of of Jordanian desert meant that it's unbelievably hot in the summer months and unbelievably cold in the winter and there's not heat and there's not enough food and the hygiene is always a problem um so imagine just 150,000 people living in tents in the middle of the desert what do you do about waste what do you do about cleanliness of any type or any attempt at that i mean water just getting water to these environments is tricky but that's the best way i can I can articulate is if you just close your eyes and imagine with no amount of planning, is it possible to manage that number of people that quickly? And then to add into all that, remember that people are incredibly traumatized and the spaces that people are coming from are horrific. So the women that I worked with that are largely the inspiration of everything I do now, um, because of their dignity and strength and humility. I mean, they are powerhouses. Like they are just phenomenal. What people, people that have lived through this kind of stuff and can still show up and be gracious with you and be giving. I mean, I find it just overwhelming. So anyway, as I got to know a lot of these women, just sitting daily, working with them, teaching them to be through my broken Arabic, you know, we're just like in this four by four little trailer park tent thing for you and women. They would tell stories slowly of what they had come from, you know, the stories of Iranian mercenaries coming into their villages and just with a double-edged sword, massacring all the men in the town square and then turning on the young boys. And, you know, rape is widespread in these environments and often used systemically. And a lot of my now studies have been on that in subsequent years, um, And with that level of trauma then comes sometimes outbursts of violence within the camp environment. It's not a very safe space because people have just escaped violence. So it can be recurring mob mentality when people are really hungry. Um, A few times when we would drive into the camp, our car would sort of be surrounded or attacked and we'd have to drive quickly through a mob just because the expectation of someone coming into that space We might have food, we might have money, we might have objects they could sell. And so a few times, just the three of us in our little car trying to get to our space to train women, the car would be surrounded or attacked and there'd need to be some intervention. Or one time we just like floored it and took off. Um, That's very typical of those environments. There were a few weeks in the dead of winter when the camp kind of lost control and we couldn't actually get in because the UN women's oasis where we would conduct training had been overtaken by families that were freezing in their tents. They had sort of just stormed the the women's oasis. So that kind of, it is not, it is not a, a very safe space feeling in a refugee camp. And the desperation is widespread.
1: That's crazy. That's intense. It is
0: definitely an intense, an intense space. And so all, all of that to say what, that inspired in me and what that whole environment taught me as i was continuing to give a damn and you know be confused and conflicted and heartbroken was that i ran out of what i could do for those women in a sense so i gave them a skill set i was able to train them the project manager still lives in jordan and continues the project today But basically I kind of trained a couple of women who could then train others and could take over my job of designing the scarves and doing what I was doing. And I realized I needed to go to school and help figure out how to change things on a policy level, how to change things in the way that the UN was conducting camp administration, try to change the way these women faced abuse and violence in those environments I mean, the statistics on women in conflict are victims of abuse, you know, 20%, 20% of women in the midst of conflicts are abused and their bodies are used um, as a form of weaponization against some other military power. And that, those are just heartbreaking. Um, human trafficking was widespread in the camp at the time. So this was something we saw on a regular basis, young girls being sold into these marriages and then... You know, these marriages were not real marriages. There were human trafficking rings. Um, All of that inspired me to, you know, I was just outraged. I think a a theme of my story is just outrage over injustice.
1: So I have a question about that. So you decided to go to school, right, to try to uh, approach this from a policy level. What's fascinating about that decision is for a period of time— You decided you were not going to directly be a part of it, right? You're not going to be hands-on there seeing things happen in real time. You chose a patient, hard way about it. What was your mindset there? How did you accomplish that mentally? Because that's a hard one right there. I mean, in general, we're not patient, right? We want things now. And if I'm going to go, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. And you said, no, I'm going to delay my getting involved in this in a hands-on way by years from now by going to school to approach it from, you know this, from a more helpful way to actually change policies because you're seeing the policies that are not working well. You're seeing the the rules and regulations and ways things are done that aren't helpful. But that takes an enormous amount of, I think, maturity and patience and just, I guess, uh, self-awareness even to just to just know that that's going to happen. How did you do that?
0: After Jordan, I was in Swaziland for a while on another project, a very hands-on development project in a similar line of work and similarly saw that on the systemic level, things needed changed. And I think what the the sort of talking to yourself moments are, if I can see the bigger picture and I understand the levels of effect that I could potentially have, if I am patient and think long game, I've been given so many opportunities that other people haven't. And I should maybe capitalize on that. Or, you know, like that, that notion of there is a sense of personal gratification from immediacy that I don't have anymore in what I do. I very rarely actually get to interact face to face with the women who inspire me to do what I do now. I spend most of my time in front of a computer screen and that's not nearly as fulfilling, but it's necessary. And like I said, I recognized and still recognize that sometimes we outgrow things as as strange as that sounds. We outgrow our usefulness maybe to people and what they need is for us to sacrifice a little bit of that personal gratification And really challenge ourselves. I guess that's the other thing is sometimes we get comfortable at doing something. And I'm one who, as soon as I'm comfortable, I know I'm not doing it right anymore. Like I know that I got to, I got to push a little bit harder and stretch myself a little bit more because there's more I can give. And that's sort of been continually my, my person, like my test within myself of, all right, I'm invested in a project. This is going well. And now I'm comfortable I've stagnated. I'm not pushing this forward. Someone else is able to take this on. I need to then move into something that I know, like I can do more. I can push myself further. But it's hard. Like, don't get me wrong. It's tough. It's those are tough. I mean, even now, those are tough conversations to have. Um, You know, you've a little more familiar than the audience with where I'm at now and how removed I am from those immediate spaces of camps.
1: Those are really helpful things, I think, for everyone to hear. I just find it just fascinating. And I think it'll be super helpful for people to really dig into that and really think through that because we're so, we want things now. You mentioned delayed gratification and sometimes the most important thing we can do is to not do it right now and to spend time learning about it. Um, even, you know, even like you're younger than I am, but even just our age, I'm on the, I'm on the cusp of millennialism, but just for millennials, we find a thing that we think is wrong or know is wrong. But whether we know something about it or not, whether we know the whole story, whether we – we just charge, right? We get out there and we march and I'm all for – I'm all for like just fighting injustice and I'm all for that. Like I'll march when when needed, all that. I'm, I'm in. But at the same time, if we are marching or advocating for something, we don't know the whole story. We don't know all that's going on. We can actually do more damage than good by going in there and saying, I'm for this or I'm against that. But then we don't we don't know why we're doing it. It's gonna eventually fade away, or we're gonna we're gonna fight for the wrong things or the wrong part of it. I think it was Rain Wilson actually on the podcast a few months ago. I think he was like chapter 10 of the podcast. He said something along the lines of like, pick one thing, like find your thing and learn it. Learn about it so deeply. Like learn that thing, and you will be much, we will be much more effective damn givers. We're not gonna try to fix everything. Like you've got this thing, you've got women in conflict areas, right? Like that's going to take different shapes and, you know, as you develop and you've done different things, but that seems to be your thing. Like helping women in conflict areas, that's your thing. And you're going to school now. We're going to talk about your education and where you see that going here in a minute. But you're, you're an embodiment of what I believe most of us need to do more of. And that is slow down, learn get to know these people and these ideas and these arguments and what's truly going on so that when it's our turn to speak up, when it's our turn to actually fight, we know what the hell we're doing. We know what the hell we're fighting for.
0: It's the advice I give to people more often than any other advice. When people come to me and ask about how can they volunteer, how can they affect change? I mean, I've grown up in the volunteer NGO space and I've managed and I mean, I've been on every level of this tier and understanding of this kind of work. And, bring a skill, like bring me your skill and your heart, and then I can work with that. But go get a skill. And as tough as that is, and as much as that takes delayed gratification, what we need are more business people who are really passionate and give a damn kind of folks. We need data professionals. I mean, we need people in all sectors who then can come together and have this team of really, really passionate compassionate, empathetic individuals working toward global change. But I don't know, it's tough because no one wants to hear that because when you're 18, you're just full of angst and desire to be effective. And that just takes a lot of less immediacy and less focus on yourself because it it kind of feels good sometimes to just go out and be passionate about a cause you don't really know anything about. Um, And taking the time to really learn the nuances is the gritty work that you have to put in though. I mean, my research in and of itself and what I've discovered about women's rights, I mean, I've swung on all sides. I mean, it's taken me the pursuit of understanding these things. I started with one theory and ended with another and will continue to do that, I'm sure, for the next decade as I push deeper into this problem. So I guess, yeah, I would follow up exactly what you said with encouraging people to maintain something in your life that gives you that immediate gratification as far as giving a damn. Have that thing. But then push yourself. When you feel comfortable, have a self-check. Maybe I'm too comfortable. There's more I could be giving. I could possibly be affecting in a greater way if I push myself a little deeper.
1: No, I'm I'm all there. And we could, man, I could spend an hour talking about that, but we won't. Um, Super helpful stuff. So let me see if I have the timeline right. So refugee camp 2013, and then Swaziland uh, 2014 into 15, and then Kosovo. Uh, 2016, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you referenced Israel. Uh, you know, a, a few months ago, or I guess 2016, 2017. Yep, that's Is right. That, yeah. So, what are a couple big lessons, some big takeaways from these one, two, three, four, five years in these incredibly needy, uh, in these amazing places with very needy situations overseas?
0: Oh, it's a tough one. I think the biggest takeaway that it's relevant in all of these spheres and to hopefully all of you listening is that listening, a deep listening is what creates good leadership. It's what creates effectiveness. It's what instructs strategic transformational change. And I mean, I could talk for three hours on, I think the power of listening and I'm not the first to say that there's power in listening, but I want to really hone in for people that I don't mean just hearing someone. I mean, being open to having everything that you previously thought tipped over on its head or having your worldview overturned or there's something that we give of ourselves in deep listening that is draining and tough. And I can honestly say I got on a plane in April and I realized how much the last five years have taken out of me. I mean, I was exhausted, like bone exhausted because I've spent a lot of time really, really pursuing what are the issues here. And then I have to constantly create an openness within myself to be proven wrong. But I think that's where any type of of really transformational power
1: lies. That's huge. That's hugely helpful. Deep listening. Um, The way that I always refer to it is not waiting for your turn to speak. You know, because that's how we listen, quote, quote unquote, listen a lot of times is I'm just waiting for my turn to rebut what you're saying instead of not even feeling like we have to start talking as soon as they stop talking. Like let it just sit for a second because they might need that second to continue talking and we need that second to continue this deep listening.
0: And I think if as a follow-up of practically to give, I guess, tips on what I mean is Sitting in a taxi with someone and you strike up a conversation about whatever women's rights. I mean, my photojournalism work and this sort of following this thread. I've gotten some of the most incredible insights and information through those conversations. I mean, countless hours just drinking coffee with people sitting in a marketplace in the middle of occupied Hebron in Palestine. I mean, that's where I've learned what's really going on. Because if you just talk to kind of elitist level that sphere, you don't get, I guess, the sense of where people's frustration and heartache lies. And you'll be overwhelmed and surprised by how much people can advocate for themselves and how much agency they have and how much they have their own solutions to the problems that they face if we take time to really listen to what it is they're saying and give them space to strategize. So that would be my biggest takeaway.
1: That's super helpful. We're going to switch gears here in in one second to your education, what you plan on doing with that, and then we're going to begin to wrap up. But before I do that, from your experiences overseas in these last few years of your life, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you hoped that I would ask?
0: Yeah, maybe actually there is one note that I'd like to just comment on for people is sometimes if you listen to these types of podcasts or you read someone's resume, it can be daunting because it sounds far-fetched and really different from whatever space it is you're sitting in right now. And I think one of the things that I would love for people to hear and understand, because you've had some, some powerhouse people on the podcast, some phenomenal world changer, give a damn folks. And I want everyone to understand those who are similarly young and in college like me, we all have those moments of like deep confusion and deep frustration and deep who the fuck am I? What the fuck am I doing? I don't know shit. And don't ever listen to what other people are doing in the sense of how they're giving a damn and feel that the way you're giving a damn is somehow less impactful or what other people are doing diminishes that cause that you're fighting for. So if you're working to eradicate homelessness just in your neighborhood, That's huge. And take heart from the snippets that I've shared and don't feel like, wow, Jordan, Syria, Swaziland, Kosovo, these are like all super different spaces with different sets of personal needs. They're not. I still wake up with the same frustrations, same self-doubt, same anxiety that whatever cause your championing, you also do. And I guess I just really want people to to kind of hear that because sometimes we get bogged down in the details of what it is someone's doing. And I want to create a sense of solidarity that it takes a lot, no matter what it is you care about. And so just, I don't know, keep caring about it. And that's it. That was my, my one note
1: there. That's great. No, super helpful. I'm glad you said that. Okay. School, your education. So you um, left a lot of the hands-on doing stuff in real time over there kind of like doing it right as a lot of people would think it like that's doing it and now you're back in school what's the plan like what are you doing right now what's the degree what's the goal
0: for sure so I've done the school thing really seriously in high school I didn't do it seriously I was just like a do all the volunteer stuff not focus on school and when I recognized that I wanted to kind of work my way up in these sort of power structures of the world I knew that that meant I wanted to go to a really good grad school program and I needed to kind of dot all the I's and cross all the T's for a little while. So I've won a few big national scholarships, which sort of have value in in their labels and in what types of degrees or what kind of uh, grad schools they'll get me into and jobs that will be available to me. So I won an award for public service last year called the Truman Scholarship and it was just announced a few days ago that I'm a finalist in the Rhodes competition. So, I interview in 10 days in Seattle as a Rhodes finalist and depending on how that goes, that would be full attendance at Oxford, fully paid for by the Rhodes Trust. And if not, if I don't win that, the Truman will hopefully help me get help get me into some other good public, public policy programs, Princeton or Notre Dame. Um So that's sort of my trajectory right now is some of these programs in public policy and international development. So I've spent a lot of time educating myself on the theory, going deep into what thinkers are saying about the role of policy in disaster relief and the role of economic development and the contextualization of women's rights across these spheres. And now that's where I'm headed. So I'll graduate in the spring um, and be In DC, hopefully with the State Department for the summer, and then hopefully in grad school in the fall in a public policy and international development
1: dual degree. And what do you want to do when you get out? Like what's your, if you could snap your fingers and your kind of dream, dream scenario is ready to go when you're out of grad school, what, what does that look like? If you even know, you don't have to.
0: Exactly. I was going to say, so that's what I think I referenced earlier that in this journey, what I've realized that's most frustrating is that gap or disconnect between the on the ground grassroots activism work and the people making the big decisions in the policy sphere. So where I see myself going forward is sort of bridging that gap. And so that could mean being like the country director for USAID, or being a photojournalist who's doing war correspondence, um, possibly part of the State Department's like response and strategy team, maybe a consultant for the UN. Like they, these kind of they, the job titles are not that important to me as much as I see the role of being an intermediary between what's really happening. Like I said, that kind of deep listening. And then taking what it is that you gather and hear and coming up with some strategies for how we can respond to disaster in a way that mitigates violence against women in these spaces and kind of reduces the risk of human trafficking and abuse.
1: Why do you do all of this? Like, the why is hugely important to me. You know, you've been all over the place. You grew up overseas. Your parents... I think they sound amazing with them leaving this to go do that. And yeah, you've had a pretty unique life and you've chosen to continue down that path of, you know, people first and you're orienting your whole education experience around that as well. Why? Like, what's the, if you could narrow it down to a few sentences, the big why for why are you doing this and not choosing some other lucrative thing and, um, you know, kind of building a more, just building something that could make you more money and get you more quote unquote fame for whatever that's worth. Cause it's not worth much. Like why, what's the why? Right.
0: Well, let's first start by saying there are days when all of that's tempting. So again, making it relatable to people. Don't for one second think that there aren't moments where I'm like, man, I should be doing the food industry thing. And I could be working for a chef in Paris and like have great outfits and just sort of doing the good wine. So I have those days and those moments where the grind is rough But I think what pulls me back constantly is there's that Lilla Watson quote, see if I can get it right. If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then come let us work together. And I think that is the truth of it. I'm really resistant to that white man savior idea and this notion of martyrdom that I need to just sacrifice my life and be sort of self inflicting of pain. All of that's just complete bullshit. And if that's why you're in this, please walk away because nobody wants you. I don't want to work with you on the front lines. I don't want you in the policy sphere. I just don't want you around. I can pick you out of a crowd, I promise. But if you've come because your liberation is wrapped up in just that shared sense of humanity and the understanding that there are people suffering That don't deserve to be suffering and there's something we can do about it why the fuck would you not and so I think that is sort of the the core of it and I think just that beauty I mean the power and the beauty of what human resilience it's it's phenomenal What what type what type of power and agency people wield that all you really have to do is enable it and that's really all I want to do I'm not trying to Give someone anything more than just the chance to wield their own power, and that is like empowerment at its core, right?
1: Yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you. Uh, before I ask the the famous last question on the podcast, it's one I ask everybody. I just want to take a moment to, um, honor you and the work that you're doing. And so I know that you've many times in, in this conversation even kind of deflected that. And, you know, you've tried to humanize it, which is amazing. And so many of my guests have, and, and I try to do that as well. I want to honor you, not in a way that elevates you above everyone else, because you're just a human. And you just even, you just pointed out 30 seconds ago in this conversation that you have days where sometimes you want to be like, fuck it, let's go, you know, be a chef in Paris. And you could do that for sure. What I wanna honor you for is your humble approach toward helping people. I wanna honor the fact that you continue to, each and every day, even though you have those temptations to go, the uh, maybe a more lucrative uh, stable for whatever that's worth career, you're choosing to make people and their worth and uh, them being free from from bad things happening to them. Like you're making that a central part of who you are and. Uh, what you want to do with your life. And I and we appreciate the work that you're doing. And we're over here, your cheerleaders. We're cheering you on uh, to accomplish this because I know that even, you know, you've got a long road ahead of you, even in the educate, like this, it, it's not easy to do the things that you're doing and um, to get these scholarships and to get into a, you know, a really great school and all of that. You you have a long road ahead of you. So I just want to honor the effort that you're making. I want to honor the the experiences you've had and how you're using them for for good, not to flaunt uh, all the things you've done, not to elevate yourself and how you've been this globe and you travel over, but you're using it to help people. And that's what's most important. So I hope you feel honored today uh, by, this, yeah, by this conversation and by, you know, what I just shared. Really appreciate what you're doing. I hope that we can continue to cheer you on as you do that. Okay. Last question. This is a hypothetical one. I always start with the hypothetical and then I have to retract it. The, the non-hypothetical part is that you are going to die someday.
0: Right, exactly. But <laughs>
1: but, uh, but hopefully that's so many years from now. But the hypothetical part is that I will be giving your eulogy. Uh, for some reason, I've been chosen to do it. All of your your family, your friends, your fans, people that you've worked with, people that you've helped, they're all there. This, it's a huge crowd because you've you know touched a lot of people in your lifetime and they're there – um, waiting for me to eulogize your life to so we can celebrate and honor um, the things that you've done and who you are. Um, in a few sentences, what do you hope that I'll say about you on that day?
0: So it's funny because I've obviously listened to the podcast, so I should have been more prepared because you do ask this every time. <laughs> but I am honestly just thinking about it now. and It's okay. <sighs> but she never lost her edge that... She maintained a sense of uncertainty within confidence, and the spark and sass and pursuit of magic was never lost, even in the midst of wading through the grime. Hmm. Yeah. I love that. I think that's what I'd hope for.
1: That's a good legacy, and that's also the first time somebody's put sassiness in their legacy. Um, but, well,
0: uh, <laughs> one day you and I will have beers in person, and you'll realize that it's appropriate. There's a certain sass that my poor parents had to live through. Um,
1: I love it. I love it. That's awesome. As we wrap up here, A, do you want people to follow your journey? And B, if you do, where can they do that? Through
0: Facebook, um, Elena Galena, Feel free to follow me through Facebook or... Um, that's probably the best way right now. At this stage, that's sort of where I'm at. I do photojournalism, but it's more subscription based. So if people are interested in following the photojournalism side of things, I'm happy to make that connection. Once we've connected on Facebook, I can get you signed up to some of my photography and the kind of dispatches, cultural and political that I do through the photojournalism angle.
1: Love it. Awesome. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining me and us today. I'm grateful for your story and the tips and tricks and wisdom that you share with us. And I hope we can do it again very soon.
0: Thanks so much, Nick.
1: My dear friends, thanks for joining Elena and me for our chat today. I hope you were encouraged and challenged and all that good stuff. Per her instructions moments ago in our conversation, if you do want to follow her, you can do so by connecting with her on Facebook. Just search for her name. I'll put a link directly for her Facebook profile in the show notes. Also, you can learn more about her accomplishments by Googling her name. Warning though, there is a model named Elena Galina also. If you want to reach the Elena I just had a chat with, search for Elena Galina and add the word Boise and you'll find several articles right away. We will have all this and more in the show notes. Check those show notes and much more out at letsgiveadam.com. This show was made possible by your support on Patreon, by my producer and editor, Chad Snavely, and by our amazing guests. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being with me. I love you all. Bye for now.